You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with, with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading is Second Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him up from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen, linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, 
a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Before I pray, I just want to take a moment as a church uh, to acknowledge the kindnesses of God to us um, during our time here. Um, A lot of you don't know the story. We were about three weeks away from being able to uh, meet in Arvada in a tent in January. Um, We we were without a home and uh, we're scrambling around a few years ago looking for a place to gather. It was right in the middle of covid um, and so the, the need for a place for a group of people to gather um, at one uh, without uh, undue restrictions um, and that would rent to us was, well, it was really hard to find. So we had a couple places fall through and literally called Brady um, after the last one fell through and said, hey, we need to start looking into that tent and how many heaters we might need. <clears throat> um, and then went to a meeting right then uh, with somebody else, to, to a church planner, I was working with, um, who knew about this building and uh, volunteered it up for us to meet here. Um, it has been a season of God's kindness to us, his blessing to us. It's been an interesting, interesting season here, but, but for the most part, not even for the most part, totally, um, we are grateful to God for his kindness that we've gathered here, um, that he has uh, done the work that he's done among us and in us as a congregation, as a community during our time down here, um, and now we're moving. So, um, I just want to give thanks to God for that as I pray um, and, uh, and anticipate this new season that God is calling us into as we move up into the building called Kirk of the Highland, which is a great name. Let's pray. So, Father, we give thanks to you for your mercies and your kindnesses. Uh, the mercies you provide are not always the mercies we're looking for. The gifts you give are not... Um, are always the surprise gift on Christmas morning that we didn't expect. Um, And so we give thanks to you for your faithfulness to us during this last season. And we thank you that you've blessed us. We thank you that you've matured us and shaped us as a church and a community in our city. And I pray, oh God, that um, in line with um, the psalmist, we hold up our cup in response to your kindness and we ask for more kindness. That we hold up our cup Um, looking back on your grace and your blessings. We hold up our cup and ask for more blessings and more kindness. We thank you. We honor you. We bless you. Now be with us now as we examine this glorious story. Help us to see it in response to worship Christ. In your name we pray, amen. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I went for the very first time to one of my very favorite places in the United States. It's Glacier National Park. Um, During our preparation to head to Glacier National Park, uh, we had heard from a a number of folks that you've got to hike the High Line Trail. Um, Everywhere I looked online, it said you've got to hike the High Line Trail. Um, If you're in Montana, you should go to Glacier, and when you go to Glacier, you should hike the High Line Trail. And I'm telling you all here, you should hike the High Line Trail. That was a freebie. You don't always expect um, Montana tourist advice during a sermon, but there you go. Um, we were there for a handful of days, and our last day there, last full day there, um, we decided to hike the Highline Trail. Um, the, that trail uh, would take someone like me hiking, um, uh, well, longer than probably most of you, um, but we spent a good six hours hiking that day, um, and there is an interesting moment, uh, two of them actually, on the Highline Trail um, as you're hiking. And as you're hiking, you are on a ledge, 
Um, there's a sheer wall on your right, and there is a sheer drop on your left, and you've got a good six feet of trail there to stay on and not fall off on. Along the wall um, is a rubber hose for you to hold on to so that you don't fall off to your death. And that happens twice on that trail. Um, during the first section of that, um, some goats started coming down that portion of the trail. And there's, I mean, goats are small, but there's not a lot of room on that trail. And then to have goats that we'd heard horror stories about, like fear the goats, don't necessarily fear the bears, fear the goats. Um, and, uh, and so we had to navigate that portion. Um, the, the amazing thing about that section of trail and, and why it's pertinent to the text we're on today is I don't know that I've ever been to a place more beautiful in my life. I mean, vistas as far as you can see, glacial lakes off in the distance and nearby. You have a sheer cliff and, and you have nothing impeding your view for miles and miles and miles. And it's just glacier cut, cut mountains, ponds, lakes, um, rivers. You, you can see for miles and miles and miles. And it is glorious and beautiful. And as you look up and you see the beauty and the glory, you must hold on to the hose. And why you must hold on to the hose is as you're looking out, if you keep walking and you're not holding on to any sort of guide as you're walking, um, it's, well, if you're me, um, there's a chance you're going to stumble. And I kept thinking this as I'm hiking. I'm looking up. This is beautiful. This is glorious. What if I miss that small rock right there and stumble and then I'm dead? And my wife would see it and it would be tragic and scary. There was a combining in that moment, in that experience of of the most stunning glory and beauty that I've ever seen, combined with very real danger right there, partly because we're that close to that glory. There was um, a, a kind of bringing together majesty and beauty, uh, beauty enough to make you sing, made me tear up as I'm walking along this trail, and very real danger. Saw a video um, after we hiked the trail of uh, not goats approaching, but a grizzly bear approaching a group of hikers on that section of trail. Um, And they literally crawled off the edge and hung on (laughs) so the bear could pass. Like here's danger and glory. Here's very real danger and beauty that you should go and experience that danger just to see it. There is in our day a notion about God um, that he should be approachable, grandfatherly, and not like a mean grandfather, but like a, a, a friendly, aw, shucks, happy-go-lucky grandfather, um, that that God must be approachable. Um, He must be um, kind of relatable. You'll even hear Christmas sermons around Advent talking about the the great glory of the incarnation is that God became relatable. The Christian religion must be a kind of chummy religion. Uh, This text should trouble you. If that's your approach and your thoughts concerning what Christianity is and who the Christian God is. In the Christian gospel, we are welcomed, we are loved, we are cleansed, we are forgiven, we are taught, we are instructed, and we are brought near to that which should terrify us. And so with that, I want to look at this story. 2 Samuel 6. Where are we? Well, the civil war is over. The tribes are no longer fighting against one another. Um, There are no other challengers to David's rule. Um, Rule over all of Israel has now been consolidated um, with David established as king. Um, In addition to that, last week we saw in chapter 5 that the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, have been defeated. They've been routed 
twice. The first time, um, God instructing David to go out and wage war. And the second time, God saying, come out um, behind them and watch his eye break out against them. Um, and here, uh, the, the Israel's enemies are now defeated. They're routed. Jerusalem has been taken. If you remember, it's a, a tribally neutral city. It doesn't belong to any of the 12 tribes. Um, so this is... Uh, political savvy on the part of David. He chooses a city um, to be the king's city that belongs to no single tribe, um, but can be a city around which all the tribes are then bound. Think um, very similar, actually almost identical um, strategy went into naming Washington, D.C. Um, as the capital of our nation. doesn't belong to any particular state as these states are being bound together in a constitution. Um, those states, uh, the, the capital over those states, ruling those states, um, doesn't belong to any one of them. Um, this now has become the city of the king. And the question that then is immediately addressed in chapter 6 is, this is the city of the king, but will it be the city of their God, of our God? You'll also remember the, the question that's pertinent to this text um, is where we left the ark. When's the last time we saw the ark? Last time we saw the ark was in 1 Samuel 7 um, in Kiriath-Jerim. The, um, the ark was being returned to Israel after its tour of destruction throughout Philistia. Um, and, uh, and there in Kiriath-Jerim, God judges men um, somewhere between 70 and 50,000 and 70. Um, and uh, um, for looking in the ark, for gazing in the ark, God breaks out there. Um, and so uh, the decision was made to just leave the ark there um, in Kirithurium. So David sees blessing is falling there in Kirith. He, he sees that the kindness of God, the, the blessings of God are attending his presence there in that place. And so he sets out to say, we're going to bring the ark, the dwelling place of God's name, that the place that God sits and abides and dwells, the resting place of his feet, back to Jerusalem. Not back, but to Jerusalem. But this will not simply be the city of the king, it will be the city of God. And so he gathers 30,000 men. Interestingly, this is the same number of those who were defeated um, by the Philistines when the ark was first taken from Israel. Um, he gathers 30,000 men and they go to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Now this would have been a, nas a massive national event. This is not something kind of happening in quiet, in secret, in a corner. Um, this is massive news. This is um, 30,000 people gathering um, to uh, basically have a parade to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Um, it's happening in our time. It's going to be, you know, they're, they're going to break into your favorite shows. We don't really watch shows anymore. TV has changed and kind of ruined so many sermon illustrations. But if you can imagine watching a show and then the, the news breaks in and every channel, it's the exact same thing over and over again. We're watching the ark and this massive procession um, as the ark finally comes to our city now as we're united as the people of God um, under a new king. Um, and so 30,000 people gather. There's a massive national event. They take the ark. They put it on an ox cart. First problem. But it's an ox cart that hasn't been used. It's, it's been actually, it's likely it's been built for this particular use and this very purpose. Um, the text is actually very, very clear. Um, the text is trying to point something out to us with these details. And it tells us that, there, that, that the ox cart itself um, was not used for common purposes. It wasn't used um, for any of it. They didn't just find the nearest cart that they could afford and um, grab it and use it to carry the ark. They built a cart, um, an ox cart that hadn't been used for any other purpose um, and put the ark on it. Um, and, and then um, they began to proceed um, towards Jerusalem, there is singing, there is dancing, there is, um, the text says, castanets, which for whatever reason um, struck me as funny. Um, I've always thought castanets were an interesting and humorous instrument. 
Anyway, there's castanets, there's singing, there's dancing, there's joy, um, there's clapping, there is noise. This is a parade, a festival, a celebration of the return of, of the, um, the marker of God's presence, the place where God's name dwells, um, of it being returned to the very center of Israel's life together. They're going along in the cart, the oxen begin to stumble, Uzzah, Riding, probably riding on the cart with the ark, sees it about to fall, recognizes this would be a tragedy here in this great celebration of the people of God, the great celebration of God's presence with his people, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the blessing of God, the, the fact that God is the Lord of hosts who reigns over all the nations. This would be a tragedy. If right in the middle of it, um, the ark fell off the cart into the mud, this is going to be bad really, really bad. It's as if when the queen is riding along in her little cart to go be coronated. If the cart broke and she fell on the ground, that would be bad. Everyone's watching. This is not going to be good for our nation. This isn't going to be good in showing honor to God. So Uzzah reaches out to steady it. Keep it from falling in the mud. And right here, before we get to what happens next, I want you to consider the intentions. What's going on right here? They're not just using any old, any, any old ox cart. It's a new ox cart. It's an ox cart put to use for this very purpose. You have 30,000 men as a kind of like visual and numeric representation to the, um, to the people of Israel that God is restoring his presence and the worship of him um, to the very heart of who they are as a people. You, you have that number undoubtedly picked on purpose by David um, as a symbolic demonstration. God is, is restoring um, his worship to his people. You have singing, probably good singing, you have dancing, you have joy, you have exuberance, you have celebration. The coming of God is good. We love it. Let's celebrate his coming. Um, let's celebrate the fact that this city, our city, the, 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 the city um, that, that marks us and binds us together as a people will be most marked by his presence. This is glorious and good and wonderful. And you have Uzzah. Trying to save the day. Everything had come crashing down in the mud. This would be tragic and terrible. Just reaching out to steady it. To keep it from falling. I want you to see the magnitude. I want the problem at the heart of this text to hit you. By all modern standards of what God wants from us, they're all met in this text. But we live in an age in which authenticity and, and just doing the best you can, as long as the heart is in the right place, um, then, then um, everything's good. Um, it looks good. I mean, what was I supposed to do? Just let it fall? But in response to this, verse 7, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. There's a number of things to point out about all that was wrong with this situation. First, they, they put the, uh, the ark on a cart. The ark doesn't go on a cart. It doesn't travel by cart. It's meant to be carried by priests. Um, and furthermore, when it's carried, it's meant to be covered. It's, it's, you're not supposed to look on it, let alone touch it. 
It's a thing that is holy. It represents the holiness of God, the name of God, um, the reputation of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God. Oh, it comes with blessings, marvelous blessings. It is a mark of God's covenant, um, covenant blessing of his people that he binds himself to these people. But you don't touch it. You don't look at it. And if he tells you to carry it on poles, you carry it on poles. This is not what they did. They put it on a cart. If you remember too, when the Philistines sent the ark back to Israel, they put it on a cart. So here is Israel, the people who have been given the law of God, instructions, explicit instructions on how they are to approach him, how they are to dwell in his presence. All of these massive glories and blessings given to them by God attending and intending to dwell with them and to be near to them um, that comes with very explicit instructions about how you are to live as a people in the presence of God um, and they're acting just like the Philistines. Oh, there's more singing. There's more dancing. There's more castanetas. They're treating God just like the Philistines did. So God that day breaks out against Uzzah. The language there is the exact same language used to describe what God does against the Philistines in the previous chapter, that God broke out against them. There he breaks out against the enemies of David. Here he breaks out against a friend of David. Do not treat the holiness of God as a small thing. Do not treat the holiness of God presumptuously. As David saw this, it says that he is angry. I think it's an embarrassed anger. Here was his great day. Here was his intended celebration of the presence of God with his people and the dwelling of God among his people. And it all's ruined. And then there's phrase here, a line here, a line that I think is pertinent to understanding the central thing we're to learn from it. Verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David saw the holiness of God, and what the holiness of God does to those who would presume to be too familiar, who would presume to try to obey God or honor God in ways not in according to God's words, God's commands. And he was rightly afraid. So they leave it there at the threshing floor. Um, That that happens at the threshing floor. Another um, biblical theological motif is throughout the scriptures, um, the threshing floor is always emblematic of the place where God judges his people where the wheat is threshed and that which is chaff is taken away. Again, that's not an accident in this text. And then David leaves the ark at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now that's interesting for a number of reasons, um, not least of which is that this is a Gentile. Secondly, he's, uh, we know he's a Gentile because he's a Gittite, which means he's from Gath. Do you remember who else is from Gath? Goliath is from Gath. <laughs> Just wonderful little pleasurable ironies in this text. Um, David, the giant slayer, leaves the ark, the mark of God's holiness and his presence and his blessing in the house of someone who's from the city of the giant. Um, They leave it there for three months, and the text tells us in verse 11, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom in all his household. So there's the first attempt. Big, fat loss. 
Second attempt, what happens? Um, David observes, hears that the blessings are coming upon Obed-Edom's household. Um, things are going well. The presence of God is attended with the blessings of God and the kindnesses of God and the gifts of God. Um, and so he hears this is happening um, and he decides, okay, now again, we're going to make a second attempt. Um, we're not told how many people went, um, but they went, they took the ark, and this time they're carrying the ark. It's not just put on a cart. They're not behaving like Philistines anymore. Um, they're, they're honoring the presence of God and the ark of God in the ways that God had commanded them to honor it. So they go and they get the ark and they're carrying the ark. And I love this. They go six steps and no one dies. And so what do they do? They put the ark down, they stop, and they worship. They, they perform sacrifices in honor to God. Um, so six steps. They sacrifice an ox, a fattened animal. And then they pick the ark up again and they begin, they continue their journey to Jerusalem. And the text tells us that David dances before the Lord with all his might. And that David was wearing a linen ephod. I know in um, popular renditions of this, uh, the, in fact, I remember being told in Sunday school class, David is dancing in his underwear. Um, that, that's not the language here. He's not dancing, in, uh, dancing before the ark um, in front of all the people of Israel in his underwear. Um, the language of linen ephod is meant to immediately point our attention to he's dressed like a priest. He's dressed as a servant of God, a servant of the presence of God, of the worship of God. Um, and this is important because of what's going to happen next with Michael as we begin to understand um, uh, Michael's wrong understanding of what David is doing and David's correct understanding of his very identity as the king. He is the priestly um, representative, priestly covenantal representative of the Lord who is the king. Um, they come into Jerusalem, they go up to Mount Zion, and there um, David had pitched a tent for the Lord, for the ark, um, and there they made sacrifices to initiate um, and to consecrate that tabernacle, um, and then the ark is placed in it. It's, it's, um, it's important to note, particularly as you search um, kind of diligently through First and Second Samuel, First Second Kings, and First Second Chronicles, um, there, there, there's a liturgical development going on here that we're gonna. I want to draw our attention to um, as we work through it. If you remember, um, at the very beginning of First Samuel, everything started at Shiloh. That was where the Mosaic Tabernacle was set up. Um, that was where the old order of worship was established, um, and it had fallen into disrepair. Then, in God's judgment. Um, the Shiloh tabernacle is done away with. The ark is carried off to Philistia. Um, and then what you have is kind of this no man's land, which is where we've been um, uh, for, for basically the rest of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. Um, you, you do have uh, the high place at Gibeon, um, which was where sacrifices continued and they would continue um, up until the day of Solomon. Um, and then now you have David uh, establishing the other part of the worship of God's people here at Mount Zion with the ark. What's interesting is the sacrifices will continue at Gibeon um, until Solomon kind of brings together Zion um, and Gibeon together at Mount Moriah. Um, the, so the, the building of Solomon's temple will be the consolidation of those two places of worship into one place of worship and the bringing together uh, of the sacrificial system with what David um, in his uh, is good innovation establishes here, and which what gets established at the tabernacle of David is music. Glorious music. He, he begins to, uh, um, he, he begins, what begins here, by the way, will be, um, it is a prophetic foreshadowing of our own day. Um, there's a number of places where uh, this tabernacle of David is referred to, and it's always interesting because it, the tabernacle of David um, basically exists for a really short period of time, and yet it's highly important within prophetic literature. Amos refers to it, um, and James refers to it in uh, trying to deal with the primary problem in the book of Acts, which was Gentiles coming into the Christian church, and the question of do they need to become Jews uh, through circumcision prior to becoming members 
of the church. And it all points back to um, this particular tabernacle, that this tabernacle was a sign, uh, a picture of what God was going to establish in the church. And at the heart of that would not be the Jewish sacrificial system. Um, um, with that would be the kind of the abolishment, the end of the, the abolishment is not the right word, the fulfillment of everything that had gone before, but now fulfilled in Jesus so that Jew and Gentile alike, um, if they're to be in covenant with God, are, are to be bound by faith to Jesus. And with Jesus is the end of blood sacrifices replaced with the songs established by David here. Last thing to observe from this text. Well, there's probably a lot more, but last thing we're going to observe from this text. What's going on with Michael? Michael observing David through a window. It's interesting, Michael proves herself in 1 Samuel to be a godly and good wife and helping her husband escape through a window. Now she's watching David from a window sees David leaping and dancing before the Lord. The text says, and she despised him in her heart. Now it's important we understand a little bit, to perhaps sympathize just a little bit with where Michael is. Michael, after being taken from David, was married to a man who very evidently, um, in 2 Samuel, loved her. If you'll remember, as as she was being taken from that husband to be returned to David, uh, that husband walked alongside weeping that the wife that she, he loved was being taken from her. She goes and finds herself um, in David's household, uh, one among many of wives and likely um, a growing and, uh, um, and burgeoning little harem of concubines and wives. Um, she now um, is watching her husband dancing and leaping and behaving very unkingly. Not very regally as he dances. So it's important you understand her bitterness, but also understand that that even looking at David's response to her, underneath um, all of that apparent concern for royal propriety, for um, apparent concern for um, David being honored rightly by people looking at him. How can you, they honor a man who dances like that? So it happens every time I dance. Um, just, just stop. Um, uh, underneath the apparent um, uh, propriety there is the hint of some kind of familial envy particularly given David's biting opening response to her. He says, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince, as ruler over Israel, the people of the Lord. He, he, goes, he, he addresses her concerns, and it's going to be important we look at that. But he opens by addressing what I think he thinks lies underneath those concerns, namely, You're just mad. Our household, my household was chosen and your household was rejected. But then he says this, and it's vital. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I'll be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. David is dancing in a linen ephod, uh, um, the dress of those who serve and minister um, in the presence of the Lord. Uh, The priests were servants of Yahweh, servants of God, servants um, in his presence. Um, They served the people, but most of all, their identity, their their very vocation, what defined them um, as priests was that they were servants of the Lord. David here is dressed as a servant in the presence of the Lord. He doesn't walk in regally as though he has some sort of parallel authority to God. He he doesn't walk along um, uh, regally as though he is this, um, um, he's this man to be held in honor. And yes, here is the ark and it's to be held in honor and all the riffraff. You guys can dance and do your thing. No, he, he presents himself as one who is overjoyed by the presence of the Lord, by the blessing of the Lord, by the covenant promises of the Lord. He dances in the presence of God and he comes dressed in the clothing of a servant. 
In other words, what Michael was looking for was a king who wasn't a servant, but a king who, who, who matched his, um, his regal authority to his office, such that the people would fear him and honor him, which was exactly Saul's problem. In the presence of God, David dances wildly, singing full of joy, full of exuberance. But God himself had come to dwell with his people. David was dressed as a priestly servant to God. He knew his charge as king was merely a charge to be a servant of God. Some observations, and then we'll close. I remember as a child hearing this story about Uzzah. I remember feeling really sorry for Uzzah. I remember being really bothered that God would break out and strike Uzzah dead. It seemed, well, it seemed extreme. It seemed troublesome. It seemed not very nice. Isn't God nice? Like Uzzah was just trying to help. Why, why would God kill him? He was just trying to be helpful. Trying to save David and God from embarrassment, falling in the mud. But I'm struck now by the reality that we need a God who is unrelatable whom we're not chummy with, who is glorious and sovereign and most of all, holy. Why do we go into the mountains to see them, to marvel at them? Why do we drive into the middle of nowhere in Montana um, to stand in the middle of Glacier National Park and see glory? Why do we go to the Grand Canyon and stand on the edge of something that is terrifying and ineffable and beautiful and glorious? It's not to think highly of ourselves. It's not to think, oh, God must be real good. Just nice. It's to be reminded. It's to see. It's, it's, to, um, it's because you and I were made to behold and to magnify and to serve holy glory. You were not made to just be buddies with God. You were not made to just make sure your heart is in the right place. You were meant to see something that would drive you to your face again and again and again and to say with David, how can this God come to me? We live in a city where people move here from all over the country, not just all over the world, to be close to something that constantly screams at them, behold how small you are. And God spoke those into existence. What must he be like So often we approach prayer and worship and what it means to be the people of God. And so God, we're simply some sort of well-packaged genie or grandfatherly chaplain just there to encourage us and make us feel better. If your religion consists of finding a conception of God that simply makes you feel better. It is not the God of the Bible you worship. To encounter the God of Scripture is to cry out, how might this God come to me? It is to be afraid. do not need a God of mere comfort and comfortability. 
The troubles we face are too enormous. The glory, the beauty we long for is too astounding. The wickedness that threatens to consume us, both from within and without, is far too great. The love we need is too much. But we worship a God for whom the whole of creation, all the nations, all the angelic beings will bow and sing and dance and shout. We worship a God who is holy. You do not leisurely come before this God. There's a dichotomy here. It's in the text. That we, I don't think, culturally understand. Here, attending the presence of this holiness, this glory, this terror, is castanetas. It is singing. It's dancing fiercely and wildly in his presence. Here is joy, real joy. Not just kind of a temporal, surface level sort of cheeriness, but real deep joy that has to come out. Um, Here is feasting and raisin cakes. Not really my thing, but... Dirty rice. Brisket. Here is feasting and, and dancing and singing and joy. Um, here is, is bringing together in this text something that's brought together again and again and again in the Bible. Here's um, um, God, the fierce one, the holy one, the terrifying one. And right alongside it is a people who dance and sing and are filled with exuberant joy. Joy that overflows um, um, in, in, in celebrating and giving thanks to this God and for this God. And here they're just thrown together right after God has killed somebody for presuming to keep the ark from falling in the mud. We don't know how to pull those things together. Um, there, are, there are those kinds of Christians who, who love kind of the, the right worship of God and the, the holiness and, and being intentional about making sure we're doing what God has commanded us in worship. And then there's a whole other kind of Christian in our day who just um, who, who kind of disregards all that and their, their, their worship is full of joy and exuberance. And God says you can't choose. Oh, holiness is integral to understanding who he is. And therefore, we worship him, we approach him. Do you know you approach him this morning? Did you approach him with fear and trembling, intent on worshiping him the way he instructs us to worship him? And did you worship him with joy? See this dichotomy brought together in Revelation 4 and 5. In chapter 4, you have this throne, and all the images in chapter 4 are describing the unapproachable holiness of God on his throne. You don't just waltz into his presence, you don't just leisurely kind of wander in. And the worship of all creation surrounding that throne, um, singing again and again and again the refrain, holy, holy, holy. And then in chapter 5, the bloody lion lamb appears. And the elders break out in the words of D.A. Carson, banjos. And, and they try to play their banjos, but they keep falling down over and over and over. I love the elders in Revelation 4 and 5. 
just such a comedic and beautiful scene uh, where they're singing and they're playing music and they're falling on their face and they're just doing it all over and over and over again. Um, And here is this bloody lamb who purchased for God a people and now all of creation and all the nations of the earth and myriads and myriads and myriads of angels surrounding this God who've just been declaring the holiness of God, the holiness of God, the holiness of God now erupt in dancing and celebration at the glory of God, this holiness reconciling to himself a people. That image is at the heart of what it means to be God's people. And last, we must learn from Michael who we belong to. Michael's a cautionary tale. We are servants of God. Whatever authority and whatever place you have been stationed, you serve God there. Parents, your job as a father and a mother, um, as you care for and raise these children, Ultimately, is that you are doing this in service to God. God tells Israel in Isaiah, he tells us in Isaiah, why have I given you marriage? Why have I given you the fruits of marriage? I have given these to you that you might raise faithful children that belong to me. Your job is not to not be annoyed. Your job is not to raise cool, hip children or children that don't cause you any problems or never embarrass you. Um, The job given to you by God is to serve him by raising children to know him, to love him, to fear him, to trust him. Whatever job you find yourself in tomorrow, um, whether that's as a teacher or as a barista or as a financial advisor or as a photographer or or as a stay-at-home mom, whatever role you find yourself in this week, um, you must know you're not fundamentally there to serve your boss. You're not primarily there just to serve the bottom line. You are there as a servant of Jesus Christ, dressed in a linen ephod. Do your work well. Do your work diligently. Do your work faithfully. And do so because you are a priest of God. As a church, we are called a royal priesthood. We gather in this room. We gather throughout the city as a people dressed in ephods, not here primarily for everyone else and certainly not here primarily for you and for me. We gather as servants of God, singing, obeying, doing all that God commanded and recognizing that we belong to him. David establishes a tabernacle. This tabernacle points to the day when the lamb would come, who fulfills all sacrifices, who makes all worshipers clean, who puts an end to all the shadows and types that pointed to him. And he leaves us with nothing to do. Nothing to do but to sing to dance, to eat, to give thanks forever and ever in the presence of the God whose very presence is blessing and joy and holiness. Let's pray and prepare for communion.